know, everyone is talking about and is excited about uh, my new roommate who will be coming in, but I will be excited about all the roommates who are leaving. What's not talked about enough is that, you know, we think that wisdom has capacity for two living creatures uh, in the rectory, but I'm convinced after some reflection this weekend that it's Father Sibley who's invited the other roommates, that is the, the constant horde of fruit flies that never ceases to leave the rectory, and with that, the whole establishment. And I blame it on Father Sibley because he buys fruit every week, fruit that does not remain, the worst kind of fruit that does not remain, and that is bananas. <laughs> and it drives me bananas. But we know what bananas are. Bananas are a constant disappointment. They seem, in our minds, uh, to be very tasty and uh, delectable. But, in reality, bananas have about a 30-minute window of ripeness. And you have to, you know, put them in a car seat after you go to the grocery store. You've got to buckle them in. We need some sort of app to tell us. Um, but, so I tell all of you this problem, um, because I'm too much of a man to actually confront Father Sibley to his face about this problem. Nonetheless, uh, there is something to it, that bananas are fruit that do not remain. But we hear about Jesus talking about the fruit that does remain, and that he desires us to bear this kind of fruit. And while it is kind of a silly analogy, it kind of does hold true that whenever sin is in our mind, it always seems appealing, but in reality, it's about as regrettable as purchasing a banana. Um, it never ends, it never turns out good. But the fruit of the vine and the work of human hands, that is the wine that Jesus turns into his blood, as we know, is the fruit that does remain. It remains throughout the whole history of the church until the end of time. And it's this fruit that Jesus will share with his disciples shortly after he talks about it in this particular fraction of the gospel. And I want to talk about Jesus, obviously he gives us this fruit, the Eucharist. But he's talking to his disciples who are present, the twelve, but he's also talking about the church at large, that if they want to remain, they keep his commandments and remain his love, then they will bear fruit. And so the fruit that the ordained priest bears is the fruit of the Eucharist, but the fruit that the baptized bears is very similar to the Eucharist in that it has very similar components. What I mean by this is that the fruit that if you were to look at the appearance of the fruit that the ordained minister bears, it is no, it appears no different than what is in the sacristy right there, but we know that there is substantial difference between unleavened bread and the very body of Christ. And so whenever the baptized and their baptismal priesthood go out and do good works in the Father's name, whenever a civil engineer who is a saint builds a bridge, it looks no different 
than the unbeliever who builds a bridge and is a civil engineer. But from within, it is substantially different. It is, can be fruit that remains. And so I want to talk about the fruit of the vine, the work of human hands, this, the blood that Jesus pours out in the words of institution, and particularly four characteristics that accompany fruit that remains, and not fruit that goes bad and, and rots quickly. First, break down the words of institution. This is the covenant of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The first characteristic I'd like to point out is that Jesus says, will be poured out. Jesus has yet to pour out his blood when offers the chalice of his blood. The fruit that Jesus bears that will last is anticipatory. The fruit that Jesus bears is anticipatory. Jesus does not say at the Last Supper, you know what, hopefully Pontius will be in a good mood and feeling pretty courageous and he won't condemn me, you know? Or hopefully Judas will have left his chapstick back at home and he won't betray me with, you know, with a kiss. He doesn't say that. He doesn't hold on to any kind of hope. What he does is... He has his face set like flint to say, I know that I will give my body and my blood. I have yet to do it in reality, but I will do it in a sign. It's what married couples do whenever they take on the vows. Have the good times and the bad have happened yet? Have sickness and health happened yet? No, but when they make the vows, they say, I will give my body and blood. They set themselves, their faces like flint. And so in all of our works, Whenever we begin the day, so beautifully said in the morning offering, but we begin knowing that in whatever ordinary thing that we do, that we do it giving our whole selves, not selfishly hoping that we can retain anything for ourselves. As St. Paul says, in baptism, we have already died with Christ. It's vain to try to live for ourselves afterwards. The first mark that I'd like to point out is that Jesus's fruit is anticipatory. And so in the same way, our good works have to be anticipatory that we give our whole selves over at the beginning of the day. The second point that Jesus makes is that will be poured out for you and for many. For you and for many. Although his works, the body and blood that he gives is for the the 12 neighbors that are present. He loves his neighbors. It also is diffusive, and it affects the entire church. Similar to, going back to the marriage analogy, in the conjugal act, that between spouses, that act is specifically for the other, but cannot help at the same time be but for many, and that it creates new life. But there are some actions that we can do, whether they be uh, lustful actions, whether they be um, dead-end jealous relationships, whether they be um, actions done in darkness between friends, sinful actions, uh, friendships, or friendships, um, yeah, friendships that that are in sin, that are dead-ends, that are for you, but by nature of their action, cannot be for many. They have to remain in the darkness. 
Or on the other hand, we can act for many and not for you. We can act for many and not for our neighbor. I may have mentioned this before in a homily, but in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which is about one demon telling another demon on how to corrupt a human soul, one of the tips that he gives is that get the soul to hate his own mother, but to love humanity. Get the soul to hate his own mother, but to love humanity. That we can, in our minds, think ourselves acting for the great good of humanity, but the actual neighbor, the actual family that we, that we live within, we have hatred towards. But the fruit that Jesus bears is at once for you and for many. It is particularized to the neighbor that exists next to me, but because it exists in the light and is generous in heart, it can be offered back to the Father, it ends up being meritorious for the whole church. The third point is that for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, that whenever Jesus gives the fruit of his blood, whenever he gives his entire self, it causes reconciliation with the Father. And so while there can be simple relationships, there can also be relationships that we are in that simply exist by common interests, by utility or by pleasure, where whenever it be fruitful, but whenever football season ends, whenever hunting season ends, there's common interests that make those friendships, that fruit will not remain. That fruit will pass. And so Jesus then says that he pours his blood for the forgiveness of sins. If the way in which I do my works, whether it be my career or relate to my family or relate to a neighbor or friend, can cause a greater desire to see the face of the Father and to be reconciled with the church, then that kind of action acts in a similar way to Jesus where it's for the forgiveness of sins. And then the fourth and the final point is that for the forgiveness of sins, do this in memory of me. Do this in memory of me. That the fruit that Jesus offers is repeatable, is imitatable, is something worth living by. A lot of times we can act in a way, or we strive to act in a way, in which we kind of ride the, the boundary between acting virtuously and viciously, where say like, you know, I'm going to tell this joke. It's not going to be a sin for me, but if you were to do it, maybe it'd be a sin for you, you know? And so we don't live lives that are worthy of imitation, that our actions aren't worthy of imitation. As St. Paul says, as he can say so boldly, imitate me, imitate me. Jesus, uh, we look at, for instance, at this divine mercy image. It's interesting that, you know, Jesus doesn't point to his brain. You know, it's not like Jesus pokes a hole in his brain. It's like, you know, admire my sacred brain. You know, like Jesus holds out his mind or something like that, right? That would seem absurd to us. He's, Jesus isn't trying to raise up people who can simply teach the teachings of the faith. Rather, Jesus opens up his heart and he points to his heart and opens up his sacred heart, wanting us to live lives that are imitatable. He wants us not to be teachers, but to be saints whose actions can be imitated. And so we ask that in the reception of the fruit that has remained, um, the body and blood of Jesus Christ in this liturgy, that we can be formed from within, 
to have all of our works anticipated, all of our works for, for one but for many, all of our works that they may be for the forgiveness of sins, reconciling others to the Father and to his church, and also be imitatable, that they can be done in memory of Jesus.